Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If you are new with us, I want to welcome you. If you are not new with us, welcome back. We are today in part three of a series called Disconnected. And what we've said throughout this series is this, that we live in a world today that has all sorts of opportunities to connect, more than ever before relationally. But if you actually look a little bit closer at our relationships, we are often more disconnected than ever before. And so we've been looking at some of those reasons why we're disconnected, some of those obstacles to relationships. So week one, we looked at this issue of conflict, something we all experience in every season in every relationship. Week two, last week, we looked at racism and the heavy topic that that, that, that is, but we addressed it directly and with truth and love from Scripture. Next week, we're going to look at technology, so we invite you back for part four of this series, but today, we address sex and sexuality, something that should unite us, but that often do, divides us and disconnects us, and uh, Guy announced it at the, uh, earlier in the service of kids, uh, or students rather, going with youth, and somehow maybe if you're a new family here and you didn't make it to drop off your kid, or if you have a, a student anywhere up through high school, it would be a great idea today uh, for now for you to take them outside. Somebody can help you with that and get them in kids' ministry in one of the classrooms in the courtyard, or take them upstairs to the youth room. Listen, it's not that I don't want you to have the conversation. We're going to talk about that. I want you to have the conversation I just think maybe the first time you have the conversation, it's not best if it's a sermon with me, who they don't know, right? Then maybe it's best if that conversation happens first with you. And so, uh, so, so take care of that if you need to today. We're going to get into it. So if your student does stay, you're going to be talking about this on the way home, all right? Uh, we're going to get all the way into this topic. So um, earlier this week... Uh, my wife had an appointment with our three-year-old daughter, and as she comes out of the appointment with my three-year-old daughter, an older lady uh, comes up directly to her and my three-year-old daughter, and my daughter's really cute, if you haven't seen her. And uh, she, this older lady walks up to my wife and three-year-old little daughter, and she comes up immediately to my daughter, gets all up in her grill, right? And she's like, hey, hi, how are you doing? And of course, my three-year-old daughter does this. Just rejects her completely, right? Devastates her. But, but then my wife does this. She says, Tanavi, that's my three-year-old daughter's name, she says, Tanavi, talk to the lady. Say hi to the lady. And then in just a moment, the same older lady said this to my wife. She said, you know, you shouldn't make your daughter talk to strangers. <laughs> it was almost like a hidden camera was up there somewhere, right? Like my wife is talking about this. She's like, She's the one who approached us. Like, I wasn't trying to talk to that old lady. I don't care if my daughter does talk to that old lady. We had a conversation as parents, right? And it was like almost there was a hidden camera or something. Like, she was set up to, to fail in that moment. As we talk about sexuality in our culture, I think most of us feel like that. We feel like we've been set up to fail. And it's, it's one of two ways. One way is this. You think, well, God created me like this. God created my, my body, but then, and, and for sex, it's obvious, but then throughout my whole life, I've been taught it's bad. Stay away. Don't do it. And maybe it's been that way for you. Maybe that's your background with sexuality. You feel set up to fail in that way. Maybe for some of you, it's been the exact opposite. You've been told your whole life, hey, sex 
Man, it is the most liberating, amazing thing. If you find freedom in your sexuality, you'll find your identity as a person. And you feel set up to fail because as you've gone out and you've expressed yourself sexually whenever and however you wanted, you have come back broken and in pain and in shame. And you think, maybe it's just set up to fail. And so we're going to look at sexuality from a biblical framework, neither one of those frameworks, and we're going to put on a biblical lens, a gospel lens, and see how God designed sex. He didn't set you up to fail but flourish in the midst of your sexuality. God designed it, but because of sin, there are distortions of it, and we're going to look at the distortions and the design and see how to navigate that as a believer in Jesus. We're going to do that as Molly read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Get that Bible out if you didn't grab one already. Grab one at the back table. Pull it up on your phone. You go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you come to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 6. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote about two-thirds of our New Testament, writing to the Christians in Corinth. And just we're parachuting in here, so you need to know a little bit about their context. Corinth was very similar to modern-day America. They had built a society on the freedom of sexual, um, sexual expression, rather. They had a life, a sexuality, centered around the goddess of sexuality, Aphrodite. And as they began to leave these other gods and be introduced to Jesus and follow Jesus, they often took their sexuality with them. Right? They left their, their God behind, their spirituality, but they took their sexuality with them. And we see that expressed in verses 12 and 13. Look at those verses. You notice something, don't you? You see quotations. Paul is quoting other people. And what he's doing is he's quoting the society of Corinth. He's quoting common thoughts, slogans that people in that society would have known around the idea of sexuality. It would be like in our day, things like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? A common slogan that defines our society. These are like that. So look at the first one with me, verse 12. It says, all things are lawful. Remember, he's quoting the Corinthians. Paul says, all things are, are lawful. This is things they, these are things they would say in their culture about sexuality. Like, all things are lawful. And what they were saying is, hey, Paul, we know Christ now. We are free from the law. We are free in Christ. And so we can use our sexuality whenever and however we would like. All things are lawful. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. I mean, Paul, we have these desires. God did design us this way with these bodies, these pleasure sensors. We, we are made like this so we can do whatever we want with our bodies. I mean, it would almost be wrong not to. I mean, we just have to do it. Just like we're hungry and we eat whatever's around, we're sexual beating beings, and so we engage in sexual activity, and it doesn't matter what it is. And so Paul is going to answer these slogans, answer these themes of their day, and he does it in verse 13. Look at the verse again. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Brings us to our first point, if you're taking notes. Our first point is this. Sex is not merely an appetite to satisfy, but a design to fulfill. We see that phrase, sexual immorality. It's the word in the original language, porneia. It's used twice in this passage, 60 plus times in the whole of our 
New Testament. And that word porneia sounds a lot like another word that we use today, pornography. And notice Paul uses that word, sexual immorality, porneia. He could have used a lot of other words. He could have used lust or adultery. He could have been more specific. But Paul knows that the Corinthian believers are like us, that we would try to find an out. If he just said lust, we could think, well, I think there's some ways. Maybe I have thoughts, but I don't know if I'm a full-on lustful person. If he just said adultery, well, man, I've never cheated on my wife. I mean, I'm faithful to her. I mean, sure, I find other girls attractive or whatever, but I've never committed adultery. So Paul knows you. He knows me. He knows the Corinthians. So he uses a catch-all, porneia, sexual immorality. And he says, your body's not meant for sexual immorality. It is for the Lord. Now, as we talk about this, porneia, sexual immorality, don't go there. You're like, Tim, you already said this. This is, yeah, this is my background. Like, sex is bad. God is anti-sex. Stay away from sex. Like, that's my whole childhood. Like, of course, Tim, you're preaching on sexuality, and of course, you're going to bring the same thing, like sex is bad. I mean, typical oppressive Christianity, like only in the confines of marriage between a man and woman. I mean, Tim, do you know what age and day we live in? Are you still stuck in that tradition, so oppressive? And if you're thinking that, here's what I would say, is Paul says in verse 13, your body's not meant for sexual immorality, porneia, sex outside of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Your body's not meant for that, but it is meant for the Lord. It is meant for something else, something way greater, that it's meant for God, that God had a plan for your body, that God had a plan for your sexuality. And it's much greater than the porneia we see in our culture and they saw in theirs. You see, I think this is one of the greatest confusions about the church and Christianity. God is not shocked by sex. God doesn't look at our culture right now and think, wait, that body part and that body part, they do that? What? Scrap it. Like, what was I thinking? Like, God's not shocked by sex. God is not anti-sex. God designed sex. He knows exactly what it does what it's meant for, how it works, and what it produces. We see this throughout Scripture, that it's good. It's a gift from God, the way he designed it. We see it in the beginning in the book of Genesis, that it's not good for man to be alone. We see Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. We see it in a book called Song of Solomon, a whole book of our Old Testament that paints a vivid picture of what sexuality looks like within a marriage. It's so vivid, in fact, that in that day, Jewish boys couldn't read the Song of Solomon until they were at a certain age. It was forbidden in the Bible. Proverbs 5 is similar. Just read two verses, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. It says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight Be intoxicated always in her love. If you were reading Proverbs 5 in your bedroom out loud, and somebody walked in, you would close your Bible. (laughs) Let your breast, oh, hey, roommate. Hey, wife. What you reading? The Bible? (laughs) 
I promise, it's Proverbs chapter 5, right? The Apostle Paul, who here in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians says, don't use your body for sexual immorality, goes on to keep writing. In chapter 7, he says, don't deprive one another of sex and marriage. That we see God is not anti-sex. God is pro-sex. God designed it. It was his idea. And listen, it was one of the best ideas he ever came up with. Right? Sex is good and it's a gift when it's used how God designed it. That God loves sex. The Phoenix Bible Church loves sex. Don't get it wrong. I love sex. So if you, you show up today and there's things you hear already or you, there's things you hear throughout this sermon and you think, well, yeah, that's the oppressive. Yeah, I know how they work. Yeah, it's bad. And that's what I've heard. No. That's the distortion of sex, sex not the design of it. Right? God loves sex. God loves sex so much and he loves you so much that he actually just hates the distortion of it. And think about it with me. This makes sense in all of life. It would be like if I were to say this, like, I hate drunk driving. I hate drunk driving. And you were to tell me, Tim, what do you got against cars? I mean, what, you just like riding a bike? Like, what's wrong with cars? And I would say, no, no, no. You see, I love cars. Like, I love the different colors. I love trucks. I love minivans. <laughs> I love all kinds of cars. Because of that, what I hate is when people misuse cars and they hurt themselves and other people. It would be like if I said, you know, if I, said, you know I, I hate child abuse, and you were to say to me, Tim, what do you got against kids? I mean, you see my little kid? I mean, she's really cute. What'd she do to you? And I would say, no, you got it backwards. I love kids. Like, they are beautiful, created in the image of God. Like, I love kids. They are a gift, Scripture says. And because, precisely because I love kids so much, I hate it when they are abused. I hate it when they hurt. God loves sex. God loves you. So he hates the distortion of sex. Right? So what do we do with sex then? So what is God's design with sex? Well, we see it in verse 18. We see flee sexual immorality to run away from the distortions, the porneia, that any sexual sin outside of marriage between a man and a woman, that you should flee. You should run away from it. Not the design. We're going to talk about that in a second. But first, you need to flee from the distortions. That's what we see in the Old Testament with, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Right? Potiphar's wife tries to tempt Joseph into having adultery with her, having a sexual relationship with her, what does Joseph do? He splits. He gets out of there. He doesn't, if you read the story, go back and read it in the Old Testament, he doesn't do this. He doesn't think, how close to Potiphar's wife can I get without sinning sexually? I just want to test myself. See how strong I am. I mean, Potiphar's wife, she's coming on to me like, what is the line, God? I mean, is it, is it making out? Is it kissing? Feet on the floor? Like, what's the boundary there, God? 
Like, how close can I get but not cross the line? What does Joseph do? He, he runs. He gets out of there. It's the same thing we see in this passage. Flee, run away from sexual immorality. So this means practically for us in our day, you don't flirt with that girl at the office and see how far you can go, and when it's serious, you'll put a halt to it. You don't do that. If you start to see yourself and you know it, man or woman, you know this. Your heart is drawn to that other person who is not your spouse, emotionally, physically, and you start to see that repeat itself over and over and over. You don't see how close you can get. Man, it's, it's actually healthy for me emotionally to have friendships with the opposite sex. And you know, while that's true, you know that's not true for you. Not with that woman at the gym. Not with that guy at the office that you, you flee. You get a new cubicle. You ask to be moved. You quit your job. Tim, are you quit my job because I don't want to flirt with somebody? Yeah, God loves sex and you so much that he doesn't want you to destroy your life by distorting it with that relationship at work or at the gym. You flee from it. You flee. You don't jump online late at night and just see what happens. I just put my phone right by the bed. Access to the World Wide Web in your hand, just in my bed, alone, at night, in my dorm room, while my wife's gone. Just, just see what happens. I mean, it's midnight, I'm tired, long day. No, you, you flee. You put your phone in the kitchen. You lock it up. You put a uh, protection on your device so that somebody else will see that if you go to that website. You flee. You don't see how close you can get with your boyfriend or girlfriend and not actually have sexual intercourse. You don't start to try to redefine sex. Well, is this sex? Is that actually sex? I mean, we didn't actually penetrate. I mean, is, is that fully sex? And like, let's have that conversation and debate that in our mind. You flee from sexual immorality. But it's not just that you run away from something. You also run to something. Right, remember, God is good. God gifts you sexuality within the context of marriage. So as you run away from those things, there's also something you run to that's amazing. You pursue God's design for sex. John Piper, pastor, author, says it this way. He says, sex is God's idea and his good gift to be properly stewarded within his design. The church should be the most pro-sex group there is, that you pursue sex as the way God designed it. So here's what that can look like. If you're married, you enjoy your spouse. Proverbs 5 says that you get intoxicated with their love always. Some practical things about that. One of the things my wife have done since early on in our marriage is we go to bed together. Right? Married couples, we go to bed together. So we've been married 12 years, got three kids, and, and on and on we go into this marriage. Sometimes it's difficult at night. I'm working on something in the living room or in the, the home office, or she's doing that. And we say to each other even, hey, it's okay. Like, I'm going to go to bed. It's okay. Like, you can stay out here and do this. I know you got stuff to do. And, and it's gotten to the point where we'll both say, like, we'll stop ourselves and say, no, let's go to bed together. Even if that means I'm working on that thing in bed next to my wife, we're in bed together. We pursue God's design for sex and marriage. We write notes. We plan dates. We plan nights away. We lock the doors. 
I told you I got three kids, right? <laughs> we schedule sex at times. We put it on the calendar. And some of you are thinking, Tim, that's just weird. Like, is that because you're a pastor? I mean, that's just, that's just strange. You schedule sex? And listen, the only reason you think that is because you don't have kids. <laughs> Amen? Right? Seasons change. The pursuit of God's design for sexuality does not. The form changes. Scheduling, nights away, locking the door. The form changes, but the function does not. You pursue your spouse sexually. You're intoxicated with her love. How often? Always. You pursue God's design sexually. Listen, spouses, this is going to be important for you as you leave this place. You work together with your spouse in the area of sexuality. You don't work against one another. Listen, I know there's lots of baggage when it comes to this topic. I know today you're going to leave and be like, well, maybe it's time for us to talk about this, and maybe she's thinking this, and maybe he's thinking this, and maybe you do need to have some of those conversations, but here's what I would say, spouse to spouse. You need to have an umbrella of grace in your sexuality. You need to work together. Will there be pain, confession, repentance, forgiveness? Absolutely, but you need to work from a place of being on the same team in your sexuality. That, that you need to realize that Jesus is your Savior. Your spouse is not. That Jesus is the one who redeemed you. Your spouse could never do that. And so have they failed in their sexuality? Yeah. Have you failed in your sexuality? Yeah. Is there an excuse for that? No. But you should have an umbrella of grace and say, hey, I, I don't want the pornea. I don't want the sexual immorality. I want to flee from that. I want to run to this. God's design for sexuality, can we do that together? Can we start with, under an umbrella of grace? We address things that are wrong, absolutely. We dig into that. We see a counselor if necessary. We get others involved in ne if necessary. But we are an umbrella of grace. We work together, not against one another. That marriages end because of adultery, yes, lust, yes, pornography, yes, but they often end because of hurt over those things and the inability to reconcile and work together. And I know it's hard, and I know it's complex, and there may be counselors you need to see, and there may be all sorts of things you need to dig up, but let me just tell you, if you would start from a place with your spouse today, man, woman, and say, hey, I'm with you in this. I know it's going to be messy. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm I'm here through it all. And you can pursue God's design for sex. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how far you think you've messed up or gotten off the track sexually, God can restore that, redeem that collectively as you work together, not against one another, in God's design for sex. That's if you're married, if you're single. Some of you are thinking, Tim, this is great for married people, naked and unashamed. Like, stop saying that. Like, I'm single. What am I supposed to do? Here, here's a few things. As you flee from sexual immorality, pursue God's design for sexuality. Pray for and pursue a mate. You don't have to pretend that you don't want one. Ask God and pursue it. I think one of the most dangerous things we tell single people is what I heard when I was single in college. And it's a very vivid illustration, so I'll give it to you right now. I heard in college, like, hey, if you're single and following Jesus, it's like a race. 
and, and you grab the baton and you're in this race and you're just pursuing Jesus. It's just great. You're just looking forward, eyes forward to Jesus, fixing your eyes on him. You're just running that race. And that at a moment, in a season, as you're running, following after Jesus, someone else will run along next to you. And they'll, they'll have their race, and they'll have their Jesus, and they're just following Jesus, and it's great too, and, and everything's kind of lining up, and you'll just happen to look over, and you'll hand them the baton. And then you find your mate, and then you get married and live happily ever after. Literally, I was told this in college. If you were told that, I apologize on behalf of all Christians everywhere, right? Horrible advice. Look at the Bible. What else works like that? What else works like, hey, just fix your eyes on Jesus, just follow after him, just do your thing, and maybe you'll stumble into righteousness, and maybe you'll stumble into relationship, friendship, a job. You'll just stumble into that. Hey, just follow Jesus. Should I apply for a job? No. Just run hard after Jesus, and the job will come running next to you, and he'll hand you a baton. We know of nothing else like this in Scripture, in life. Yet with single people, <laughs> we're just mean to you, and I'm sorry for that. Pursue a spouse. He who finds a wife finds a what? A good thing. God knows you want that. Don't try to act like you don't. Pursue it. Pray for it. Ask God for that man or that woman to enter your life, but at the same time, pursue it. Now, I would say this. Guys, this starts with you. And you say, well, that's risky. It's risky just to pursue a girl, like ask her out to dinner, like ask her out on a date. Like, I, I kind of want to play it slow. That's kind of how I roll. No. You take risk in all areas of life. You shoot guns, men. Like you play sports that you're too old to play. Like you, you jump off cliffs into water. You take risk in every sphere of life, but with asking a girl to dinner, that's too risky. No, it's not. Step out and pursue a woman. Might she say no? Absolutely. Might God refine you and teach you and renew you and teach you you're not the center of the universe in that process? Yes. Would that be good for you? Yes. Would you draw close to Jesus in that moment because it was hurtful? She said no to you. Yes. Men, can we just rise up? Single men, you don't have to stand up, but that'd be nice. That'd be effective for the single women. I'm just saying, okay? Maybe we'll do that at another time. But can we just rise up and pursue godly women if you're single? Don't play the game. Be direct. Be courageous, brave enough. Loving enough to be direct. I, I know this because I talk to single guys. Some of us are thinking right now, well, Tim, I haven't found the one yet. I mean, I kind of dated this girl for a little while, but we just didn't really jive. We weren't chemistry, you know, that we needed to have. And, I mean, there is this girl. I mean, she is a godly girl, but, like, I mean, I just something, like, I'm attracted to her, but just something kind of off. And it's like, dude, get out a mirror. <laughs> like, there's things off with you, too. Like, what are you waiting for? The perfect example for which you're not? And listen, I'm not saying lower your standard. I'm saying be reasonable. I'm saying that love is built. 
Love is built. I dated my wife for two years before we got married. We were friends for a while. I kind of liked her. She wasn't into me. Like, I was scared to ask her out. I was that guy, so I've been there, right? Then there came a time where she liked me, and I wasn't really into her. And then eventually God brought us together, and we pursued each other, and then we got married. And guess what? We weren't the same. And who I thought she was, the perfect person I thought she was, she wasn't, and vice versa. And we had to build our love. We had to work on that. So stop waiting for the person, perfect person. Listen, again, single people, I empathize. I know it's hard. It's harder today than it ever has been before. You're, you're swiping and you're being swiped. Like, oh, maybe her, maybe him. While you're on a date with somebody else. Right? Maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm connecting with this person, but like maybe what if, I don't know, what if, swipe, swipe, swipe. What if she's not the 10? What if there is, is a 10? What if he's more like this and maybe, maybe I won't commit yet and I'll just kind of dibble and dabble. And where is that leaving our single culture broken, confused, in pain, used? Listen, pursue a spouse. Pray for a spouse. As you do that, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, said this. It is not love that sustains the marriage, but marriage that sustains the love. It's not love that sustains the marriage. It's the commitment of marriage that sustains the love, right? As you pursue someone, as you build things, I'm not saying you don't have anything in common. Don't find the antithesis of you, right? Find somebody who loves Jesus, who, who has some, some similarities, who you're somewhat attracted to, and start there and build the love, and stop getting in your mind that you're just going to find it. You're just going to run up next to somebody, and they're going to hand you the baton and be like, congratulations, let's get married. <laughs> so single people, I pray for you. I honestly do. I know it's hard. What I would say, again, is in the meantime, some of you are thinking, well, Tim, what if I have the gift of singleness? Maybe you do. Paul talks about that too. I don't think you'll know that till you're 70 and you're still single. I don't know anybody who's 30 and is just like, I have the gift of singleness, right? But if you are single and, and you're thinking, well, when I get that, yeah, pursue it, and that's going to be my whole life's goal, and then my life will matter. Don't think that. Redeem the time now. Cultivate friendships. Get a married mentor couple and just say, hey, I'm single. I want to be married one day. How can I redeem this time and start preparing financially, spiritually for that day when I do get married? Make the most of your time as a single person. Serve. Some, some men are just like, man, what am I supposed to do then with all this pent-up sexual energy? Serve. Lift some heavy stuff for Jesus. Right? Run some cables on Sunday morning. Lift these speakers. Help us on Sundays. Serve. Why? Because you're freed up to do that more when you're single than when you're married. Redeem this time as you pursue. Sex is not merely an appetite to satisfy. It's a design to fulfill. Married or single. Second thing I want you to see is sex is not merely a physical act, but a redemptive union. We see that in verses 15 through 20. Three times in these six verses, Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And it's all around our bodies. He's trying to wake up the Corinthians and us from minimizing sex to just physical with our bodies. 
that Paul is going to say it's not just physical, that it's spiritual, that it involves your soul. We see it verse 14 and 20. He says your body is going to be raised and renewed just like Jesus' body. Your body has been bought. It's been redeemed by Jesus. Verse 15, your bodies are members joined with Jesus. Verse 19, your body is a temple inhabiting Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just here with you at church, and then you go off and do what you want. Jesus isn't just with your soul. He's with your soul in a body. He redeems your body. He cares about your body. And the lie the culture will tell you is, no, it's just a physical act. I mean, even in this day, the Corinthians, as Paul says, he talks about people being joined with a prostitute, and he uses that word joined. That's a word of of union. It's the word that, like two metals that are melted down and that become one. Paul says, you know, like you're joined to a prostitute. The Corinthians would have read this and said, Nobody joined into the prostitute. That was just something I went and did with my my body. I'm not joined with her. And Paul is going to say, and God's going to show us throughout Scripture, yes, you are. It's not just a physical act. It's a union. Listen, that's why those images that you look at are so damaging. It's not just an image of someone without their clothes on. No, it's something, it's a, it's a union that you're creating, an attachment with your soul that you carry with you. And then when you do it again, you carry it with you. And when you do it again, you carry it with you. And it builds up and it builds up into a big ball of shame. That's why pornography is so damaging. That's why casual sex and one-night stands are so da- damaging. Because your body is, is connected to a soul. You're not just a body, you're a soul with a body, inside a body. Every time that casual sex, every time that pornography, every time that fantasy in your mind, you engage with that, your soul attaches to it. And so listen, in our culture today, we have people attaching their souls to every every possible thing. Every possible thing we attach our souls to, listen, And then we end up disconnected. And then we end up wondering, like, who am I even more? I feel like I'm all fragmented. And there's just parts of me out there everywhere. I don't don't even know who I am anymore. And it messes with our identity. Why? Because you have a redeemed body. You've been bought with a price. You have a body that inhabits Jesus. So when you go to that screen, when you go to that flirtation, Jesus isn't separated from you. You're members of the same body. He's with you as you look at the screen. He's with you as you get emotionally attached to the other person. Jesus is with you always, not just in church. There's no disconnect between soul and body. And therefore, sexual sin, porneia, is devastating. But also, sexuality within marriage as God designed it is the most beautiful thing ever. Because you give yourself to someone in that moment, in that sexuality, with your spouse. You give yourself to them, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. The two become one. Like melted down metals, you become a new 
metal. Sex is not merely a physical act, but a redemptive union. It's like a fire in your house. It can be amazing. It can bring warmth. It can bring ambiance. Like, I can't wait for it to drop to 65 in Arizona. So I can light. We don't have a fireplace, but we have a heater that looks like a fireplace. Pray for me. And man, as soon as it gets a little bit cool outside, we light that thing. We sit around the fake fire. Because fire in a fireplace is beautiful. It gives us warmth. The fireplace God created for sexuality is the covenant of marriage. And when it's in that covenant of marriage, it's beautiful. It gives us warmth. It fulfills us. We, we become one as God designed it with our spouse. But you let that fire out of that fireplace, just like a real fire gets out of the fireplace. It burns down the house. It burns down the house next to it. It destroys everything in its path because your soul is connected to a body. Within marriage, sex is beautiful. Outside of marriage, it is devastating. And you know this. That's why it's so tense for us to talk about this right now. You see this in our society that's why it's so tense in our society right now. That's why the, the Me Too movement and just a hashtag has changed the scope of our country. The conversation you have at work about sex has now changed. Why? Is it just because somebody developed a hashtag Me Too? No, that brought to the surface something deeper, that our body's connected with a soul. When we go outside of marriage for our sexuality, it's devastating and it's painful. So sexual assault that hasn't been admitted for years and years and years, why? Why is that? Why will somebody report immediately a break-in into their house? If someone assaults you just physically in a fight at a bar, why do you call the cops? But rape, molestation, I can't talk about that. It's because your soul is connected to your body. God created you that way. So when you do things or things that have been done to you that are, are terrible, egregious sins, there's a disconnect. There's pain. There's brokenness. You see it in your life. We see it in our culture. I, I don't even need to just preach this to you. Some of you are nodding your head. Some of you have a stoical look on your face because you know it's true. Why? I don't need to preach it to you. Paul doesn't need to preach it to you. Our culture is preaching it to us right now. Like they're figuring it out. Just now in our society, they're figuring out in our culture what the Bible said over 2,000 years ago. And we're starting to figure out Okay, those movies and TV and the billboards and the magazines and this picture of sexuality outside of marriage, porneia, okay, that stuff that I thought was going to be so liberating and, and freeing, oh, it's, it's creating bondage. What I thought was going to free me has now enslaved me. We see that in our culture. We see that in our life. And so what's the answer for that? I want you to think about in your life. How have you gone outside God's design for sexuality? 
you need to address it. The reason why we're preaching on this is not to make everyone feel awkward. I promise you. The reason why we're preaching on this and addressing it in a full sermon is that so you can address it so that you can experience hope and healing. That what's in the dark will stay in the dark and it will rot you out. But what's brought to the surface Brought in the light, God's healing, restorative, loving power can mend any brokenness, any wound that you have. But you have to address it. You have to surrender it. Not negotiate it, but surrender it. Not say, God, well, you know, I mean, I just, I kind of, I deserve this. I mean, after a long day, I mean, it's just hard. I just go to this for an escape. I mean, I kind of just deserve this. Not say, well, Tim, you don't understand. I mean, I can manage my sexual sin. I mean, I know other people can't. I know pornography leads to all these other things, and there's all these studies that are shown. I know casual sex. It's not just a one-night stand. It goes with you. I know all these things, but Tim, you know, I have the power to manage it. No. No, you don't. That, that you wouldn't excuse it, but that you would re- address it and you wouldn't negotiate with God and say, well, I'm going to keep this over here and keep this over here and just sort of maneuver my way around it. You would address it. You would let go of it. You would surrender, not negotiate. And it's in that moment that God can bring healing and hope and life back to your sexuality, that he bought you with a price. He redeemed you out of your sexual sin, all the things you have done. Listen, all the things that have been done to you, Jesus Christ can redeem your body. Yes, yours. He can fix your shame. You see, I think the reason we don't address it is because we think, well, yeah, maybe he can buy other people, but he can't buy me. It's too far gone. I'm too broken. Yeah, maybe Jesus died for all shame, and he brings some stuff to the light, and he sets us free, and, but that's for the other person, not me. I think the hardest thing for us to grasp is that Jesus didn't just die for shame. He died for your shame. That when he was nailed to the cross, that when the blood came out of his hands and his body and he cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? That when he was in pain, he was taking your offense, your offense, your offense, your sexual sin, the sin that's been done to you. He was taking yours, not other people's ambiguously. He was taking yours. And when you surrender and open empty hands of faith to Jesus and say, God, I want to give you my sexual sin, what's been done to me, what I have done. God brings healing. Amen? That's the hope. That's the promise for you, Christian, in this room. And some of you, again, may may wonder that. Like, well, Tim, but it's been a few times, and, and I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be for me. What I would say is go go back and read the story of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea is a guy who God says to go, tells to go buy a prostitute. Crazy story, kind of like the days of our lives. Read your Bible. 
Hosea, go, go buy this prostitute. And so he, he does, and he goes and gets her. She cheats on him. She has a kid with somebody else. She does it again. She doesn't just betray him sexually one time. She does it multiple times. And she does it so much that she ends up in a, a sex trade market. And God comes back to Hosea, and he says, you go buy her. Her? Yeah. The one that's cheated on me multiple times, the one that had two kids that aren't mine, her, that over and over again sexually has wronged me, yeah, you go buy her back. You go redeem her. You call her yours. You pursue her. You love her as she is, not as she should be because no one is as they should be. That story of Hosea is not just a story about Hosea and Gomer. That is a story about your life and mine. That as you have gone your own way sexually, you've gone outside God's design, you have distorted it, it's been distorted, distorted to you. That you've done that once, multiple times. That over and over, God says, Jesus, go, go buy him. Go buy her back. I'm going to redeem him. I'm going to redeem her and your sexuality. You're not too far gone. Your sin is not bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. It is sufficient for you. Your shame. Your sin. And so we're going to end this morning celebrating that. We're going to take communion. And so I'm going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to ask you, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you have given him your sin, you've surrendered it, if you've done that in your life, that you would come and partake in communion. We'll come down the center aisle and go around the side aisles. The way we do that here, we have two stations. You'll take the cracker, you'll dip it in the wine or the juice, and you'll celebrate the death of Jesus for your sin and your shame, even your sexual sin. And, and I know... If you take this, that means you know Jesus already, right? But I know you still have some sin in your life that you feel like you're hanging on to, some baggage. Those kids that Gomer had, with Jose, not Hosea's kids, some baggage. Imagine that was awkward at times, right? Imagine that reminded him at times. And I imagine you're reminded at times of some of your baggage. Well, I know Jesus, I know I'm forgiven, but what about this? What about that? As you dip the cracker in the wine or the juice, as you take it back to where you're seated, would you take a moment just to confess those things, to confess that baggage, to ask forgiveness for that baggage, to surrender that baggage, to flee that baggage, and to run to Christ and his design for sexuality. That's what we're going to take a few moments to do. In the midst of that, there's all sorts of practical things. We're going to send out an email this week with some resources. I know we can't fix this, in a 40-minute sermon. So be looking for resources. Check our social media. We're going to send you those. How to get connected. How to not do this alone. But man, first, got to surrender. So let's take a moment to do that now. Father in heaven. God, I thank you that we can talk about this in church. That we talk about it in every realm of society outside of church, without a Bible, without your word. But God, there needs to be some times when we step in this room with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ 
and address a difficult subject like sex. And I thank you for your grace in that. I thank you for your truth in that. This is uncomfortable. It's not, it's not easy, but it's true and it's right. And you do have a plan for our, our sexuality. And if we would trust you, it won't be easy, but we will be full. How do we know? Because you designed sex. So when we walk in the way you've designed us with sex, God, there's joy in that. There's fullness in that. So God, I pray for these men and women right now. We're not living in a hypothetical scenario of sexual sin. God, I pray for your grace in the midst of their reality, the grace to repent, that you say that you will forgive us. You are just to forgive us of our sins, the grace to repent. God, the grace for some of us to forgive to forgive the person next to us, to forgive that boyfriend from a long time ago, to forgive that family member who abused us, to forgive our spouse, that you would give us the grace to repent and the grace to forgive, and we would do it as we look to the grace that you have given us and that you have forgiven us of all of our sin on the cross. God, help us to take a moment to reflect, to surrender to a good, righteous king in our sexuality. God, help us. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.